Let us now prepare our hearts to receive from God's holy word through the preaching of God's word. Let us pray. Sovereign Father, we want to thank you, O God, because you have made known your heart, your ways, and God, you have also shown it not only through your Holy Spirit, but according to your word. We ask, therefore, that as we reflect this day, Lord, that as we look at your word, that you would cause us to realize our mission as your church, especially in these times. So speak, O God, your children are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the sermon this morning is taken from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Uh, let me read it to you again, um, following the English Standard Version, the ESV. Verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now this Sunday morning, as we reflect on God's word taken from the Acts of the Apostles, the first 11 verses, we want to ask this question, and what is the importance of the ascension of Jesus? All of us who have grown up in church, who have been baptized, who now follow Jesus every day, we do well and we recognize that the cross is the important part of the gospel. And yet at the same time, even though Jesus said and on that cross, it is finished, it set in motion something that continues till today. What would that be? Well, it begins with the ascension of Jesus Christ. If you look at the book of Acts, we see that in the first three verses, that this book is in continuation from another book. Uh, we all know this to be uh, the third gospel, yeah? the gospel according to St. Luke. That's why we see that uh, the author himself, the good Dr. Luke, says in verse 1, 
In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. So that's a very succinct summary of what the book, the Gospel of Luke, is essentially about. Everything that Jesus did and taught. Now we know, however, that the book of Acts is is very, very special because it's not that Jesus has ascended into heaven and therefore he's done with the church. He's left them and they have to fend on their own, hopefully, you know, with great hope and joy. And that's it. No, we see that Jesus is not finished with the church, you know. And we see here even the very beginning because as Luke talks about how in the Gospel of Luke it was primarily about the acts and teachings of Jesus until his ascension, we find here in the first 11 verses that he still has something else to do. Isn't it? We see here, it says here in verse 2, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3, we continue in this point. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So here we have, in this first part of the, God, of the book of Acts, that prior to the ascension, and nevertheless in light of the ascension, something important is building up to that event of Jesus being taken up into heaven. And it was this, lest we forget that after Jesus' crucifixion, and resurrection, Jesus actually spent a considerable amount of time. It said there, isn't it? In verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. So it was not as if, uh, as uh, if, if we forget or we didn't know this, it's not as if Jesus, after his physical crucifixion, after his physical resurrection, that there ceased to be physical journeying, physical teaching, physical encounters with his disciples. No, we see that it happened continually through intervals over a period of 40 days. Now, that itself as a point on its own is very significant because from a perspective of experience, we can therefore immediately dismiss the fact that the disciples were hallucinating, you know, when they talk about looking at the resurrected Jesus, maybe because they were just overwhelmed with grief and then they saw something, a place that reminded them of Jesus and it was so vivid and they thought, oh, and suddenly they say, hey, I see Jesus there. It's nothing like that because we see that this Jesus physically resurrected is someone who physically continues to encounter them. And it's interesting, isn't it, that this this picture is characterized not only by encounter physically, but by encounter that is marked with an event of teaching. That's why we see in verse 2, isn't it? He given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. That means now this, this resurrected Jesus, as he builds towards the ascension, has now come to give them important commands in the power of the Spirit. And that is very important because you will see this word here, yeah? through the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit. This will continue to be prominently featured even in these short 11 verses. Uh, we will talk about that afterwards at the end. But here, this resurrected Jesus appears to them in anticipation of the ascension, to teach them, to command them in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So it's not just some sort of farewell speech or just some sort of celebratory kind of, of meeting. No, there was important, serious teaching. And not just one of a cognitive level, but one that required conviction of the Holy Spirit. One that required the power, enabling power of the Holy Spirit, not only to comprehend, but to be convicted and subsequently enabled. Like Jesus was doing in his earthly ministry in the Gospel of Luke. Now, furthermore, we see that it's not only physical encounters characterized yeah, by teaching and therefore it is irrefutable because it took a period of 40 days and so many of them saw Jesus as we have seen even the Apostle Paul vouch for this. Many of them saw, for, saw the resurrected Jesus. But we see in verse 4, importantly, uh, the ESV uses this word, yeah, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait. Now, the word staying here is not just a literal dwelling with them as he meets them. And we know that this resurrected Jesus is someone who, uh, though physically encountering them, can also disappear. Yeah? So it's a different kind of encounter with the risen Lord now. It's real, it's tangible, and yet at the same time, it is spiritual to the point that this Jesus, however, doesn't need to have doors open for him. He appears and it's going to be contrasted with Jesus physically being ascended very soon, however. Yeah? Now, going back to verse 4, when Jesus stays with them, it's not just dwelling with them in the same space. The literal word could also mean to eat with them. So again, this is very vivid imagery because it talks about how this Jesus is going to be ascended. It's nevertheless still human. 100% divine, 100% human. Not a ghost, not some uh, formless body, you know? but he is someone who can literally be in the same space with his apostles, with his disciples, and he can actually, quite literally, eat, consume food, biological food. But the point here is this. The tangible presence of the risen Lord going to be ascended is now, however, zooming in on the mission of teaching and commands. And from there on, after 40 days of teaching them about the kingdom of God, we see that in verse 3b, and we will come to it because it's going to be very contrasted with the question that the disciples asked in verse 6, we find that there's an important instruction amidst all of these things, all these commands about the kingdom of God. He says in verse 4, as he was staying with them, he ordered them, don't depart from Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father which he said, you heard from me. And he goes on to say, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So we see now the second occurrence of the person, the third person of the Trinity, which is the Holy Spirit. So as they hear this command, the next segment here comes to the actual farewell, isn't it? So Jesus has spent a good more than a month. Okay, and it will be another 10 days before they experience the day of Pentecost, and that's coming next Sunday, I believe. But nevertheless, here, having said all that needed to be said, the cause of 40 days concerning the kingdom of God, concerning the anticipation of the Holy Spirit that will come upon them, he goes on now to depart physically. We see in verse 6. So when they had come together, the disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What is his immediate reaction to this question? He's leaving them, you know, and this is their last question they want to ask him. Well, he says to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Why does he say that? 
Now, if you look at the question that the disciples ask, is it a wrong question to ask? Or is it more a misguided expectation? It's the right question, but with a misguided expectation. Because here the disciples are asking Jesus, will you restore now the kingdom of Israel? And if you are a good Jew who knew Old Testament scriptures and prophecies, they would know, and I think they did know, that with the advent of the Messiah, there would be restoration of that Davidic kingdom on earth. So in a theological sense, meaning in terms of, of what God has promised and what he's going to do at a, a large level, a cosmic level, yes, it's true. You know, the kingdom of God will be restored. You know, the Davidic king and the Messiah will reign. But at the same time, the way it is worded seems to imply that there is a priority of nationalistic pride as opposed to kingdom values as opposed to the priority of the kingdom of God beyond political landscapes, beyond nationalistic aspirations, even that of Israel, even though they acknowledge God as the supreme ruler. It is contrasted with what Jesus had been doing all along in the Gospel of Luke. And even here in verse 3, when Jesus spent 40 days to teach them about God's kingdom, it is not about a nationalistic stamp that the kingdom of God is going to be characterized by. It is not. And that's why Jesus actually responds and says, it's not time, it's not for you to know the time because they wanted to know, is it going to be now? You know, um, they had already been journeying with Jesus. They had gone through a lot. They would seen their uh, supposed saviour crucified in such a gruesome manner and their hearts were torn and then suddenly he rises gloriously from the dead and he appears to them and he teaches them. He gives them the mission. They think it's now, isn't it? But Jesus tells them the issue, the priority, is not about when. The focus in living out the identity of citizens of God's kingdom is not about when it is going to come, but what they have to do to live out that reality in the present. That's why he says, after, after verse 7, when he says, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, he goes on to explain in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The third mention of the person, or the third person of the Trinity, the third time it's mentioned concerning the Holy Spirit, and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Do you see immediately his reaction? Not only does he tell them, it's not about trying to figure out when this is going to happen, but it's about what you're going to do as citizens of God's kingdom. Don't waste time trying to figure out when the kingdom of God in its fullest sense is going to come. But your preoccupation, your priority should be first being filled by God, the Holy Spirit. And we see here very clearly, isn't it? The receiving of the Holy Spirit results in the receiving of power. Power to do what? You know, in, in these days, we are heavily conditioned by what we see, by what we uh, ourselves aspire when we say we want to be people of power, isn't it? So when you talk about the political landscape in any country, you say you wield power uh, through whatever means, like, whether corrupt or not, as long as you're able to influence people to do your bidding. That is power. Uh, in a more crass and tangible manner, power can be seen through brute strength, aggression, military might. 
but the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus says is going to come upon his apostles and his disciples will be characterized not by influence, not by brute strength, but by boldness to witness to Jesus Christ, to bear witness of his glorious resurrection, his necessary crucifixion, his glorious resurrection, and the hope that he is going to come again. But all these three events, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and now the impending ascension, as we're going to read very soon, are all anchored, centered in the experience of the Holy Spirit. And that's why he says, the Holy Spirit, verse 8, you will receive power when he has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Only then, it is therefore not based on your, your sense of personal obligation because you are a Christian, therefore you must witness to Jesus Christ and tell people about the gospel. No, it's not through that. There must be an encounter. The Holy Spirit must come into you. And you see the result, it says, when you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, but it doesn't stop there, isn't it? If you if you look at verse six again, when the when the disciples asked, "Will you restore the kingdom to Israel?" They were preoccupied with the nation. They were preoccupied with the political landscape. They were preoccupied with the glory, the resumption of the glory of the holy city of Jerusalem. But Jesus says, "When you have the Holy Spirit on you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth." There is not only a geographical enlargement, but there is a universal implication for mission. One that is in light of the historical crucifixion and resurrection, but one, importantly, that is enabled, empowered by God himself. That is something which the disciples will soon experience in the subsequent chapters in the book of Acts. Now, after that, we see verse 9, when he had said all these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, from verse 9, there is a constant repetition of this into heaven, into heaven, gazing into heaven. It's almost as if there is a point of rebuke, of correction here. Having received all that Jesus had commanded them over the period of 40 days, having been promised and told that the Holy Spirit will come upon them and they have to wait, as they see Jesus being lifted into heaven, they are actually for a moment paralyzed. They have become stargazers as opposed to being mission workers. And that's why we see, even though many people have tried to, to look at the text and try to understand what it means when Jesus was taken up into heaven, was it a physical elevation or was it similar to Jesus who had, uh, after his resurrection, continued to appear and disappear? Although we see here, based on the text, it looks to be quite literal and people have tried to make sense of it. You know, uh, is, is, is it uh, being lifted up into the spiritual realm of heaven? Well, there, there are different, different opinions. But the point of this text here 
is that in verse 9 to verse 11, there is this lesson, a reflection for us to consider. The disciples were actually, well, in a very, very pleasant way, I suppose, told and questioned as to why they were just standing there looking into heaven. Well, you could say, well, because they've never seen anything like it. But there is a thematic significance here because we will see that pretty soon, come the day of Pentecost, the church will be a church that is mobilized, that is constantly on the move in the power of the Spirit to talk about Jesus, to preach Jesus, to let people say that you need to encounter the living Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, through faith in power. I just want you to, to reflect as I've gone through the exposition from verse 1 to 11, right, to reflect on two points. The first has to do with the, the state of mind of the followers of Jesus, even back then as an early church, and how it could actually uh, be of uh, some relevance to us today. What is the gospel really about? For Jesus' followers, they had to be recalibrated, they had to be taught properly that it's not about nationalistic pride. It's not about changing the world or ruling the world through politics. So on one hand, Jesus is correcting them in that manner that no, the kingdom of God is bigger than that. Yeah? Uh, don't just think about correcting things through the political lens, whether ex-activists or even through politics. And the church today is reminded that our call to talk about the kingdom of God goes beyond the political landscape too. So there's no room for being partisan. There's no room yeah, to, to hijack the gospel with, with, uh, with messages that are, are loaded with political intent. They must be gospel-centered values in the kingdom of God. These things must influence the church even as we influence the world. Kingdom values, not the other way around. Sadly, I have seen some of that happening and taking place even at the pulpit in certain churches. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, however, as we've seen with the disciples too, you're not meant to be political activists, but you're also not meant to be paralyzed pietists. What I mean is that, oh, you know, all we want to do now is just sit there and think about Jesus and worship the Lord Jesus in the comfort of our church and, and away from the darkness of the world, away from all of these, uh, uh, these untruths, all these perversions of, of what God has created. No. We know, we see in verse 9 to 11 that the angels themselves, that have figured prominently in the Gospel of Luke 2, they tell these men who are gazing at their departed Lord, says, what are you doing standing there? <laughs> Why are you still standing there? Get ready. Be prepared to receive the Holy Spirit. Be in prayer. So on one hand, there is no room for this kind of limited social activism that does not characterize the kingdom of God. It's beyond that. It's not the exclusion of it, but it's beyond that. And likewise, as well, it is not a kind of, of gospel whereby you are just in the comfort of your own stationary posture of worship with no concern for the world. There is going to be changes in the world. The gospel brings revolution. It turns the world, as you know, it upside down. And as we will see in the book of Acts, you have a chance to read it. They get, the Christians get in trouble for it, isn't it? But great power accompanies them in the Holy Spirit and lives are changed, lives are made new. So this is the first thing for us to consider. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? In light of the ascension, Jesus shows us that Jesus is the only one that has embodied both elements of the kingdom of God. 
He was able to make change in the social element of the, of the kingdom of God, but he was keen to ensure that it's beyond that. You need to deal with the root cause, which is sin. And the church for us will do well to be reminded of this. It's not either or, but it's beyond these two. It is centered on the gospel mandate. Secondly, and this links to the significance of the ascension, and I asked that question at the beginning, why does Jesus have to ascend? Well, we know in the Gospels, whether it is in the Gospel of Luke, even in the Gospel of John, that it is the plan of the Father, that Jesus, as he's taken up, as he's mentioned in the passive form, is that he's taken up, it is God, the Father, who takes him up. It is God, the Father, who takes him up, and as we remember what Jesus says, that he will send the Holy Spirit. And the church is now called to show forth, to embody, to reflect what Jesus did in his earthly ministry, whereby it was not just the Spirit of God at work, but it was the man of God, the Son of God, who is fully God and fully man, who works in perfect unity with God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit to preach and demonstrate the gospel. And now he says, the Holy Spirit will now dwell with you. The Holy Spirit will now accompany you. In fact, in the book of Acts, we know that Jesus' work is not done, even though he has ascended there, and there are many reasons for that, but this is one particular reason. He continues to work through the Holy Spirit in us today to give us that power not to be aggressive, not to just influence, no, power to witness boldly. The heart, the faith, the love, the urgency, if I may add that. And so with the ascending of Jesus Christ, it now ushers in that age whereby the church is now charged to embody what Jesus did in his short earthly ministry until he comes again, the parousia. What about us today? Do we understand that this ministry can only be done in the power of the Holy Spirit? Do we understand that in light of the ascension of Jesus Christ, it was necessary in part as part of God's plan to give us the Holy Spirit so that we can reflect the life of Jesus as the universal church throughout the world working with physical hands and our minds and our feet in the power of God. Not just sometimes with the power of God, not just sometimes with the inspiration of the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. That is what I think is lacking in our churches today. Some say, oh, you need to know more about the Bible. Or some say, oh, you need to be more with the grassroots. But the most important thing for the church in discipleship is are you walking in the Spirit? You have heard the gospel message, you responded cognitively to it, but have you surrendered yourself to the Holy Spirit to change your heart, to change my heart? We talk about how the gospel, therefore, is for the world, not just politically, therefore, not even politically, actually, beyond it. Not just social activism, not just quiet piety, but it is also one that needs to be led by the Holy Spirit who gives us this boldness to preach the gospel all the time. In words, in deed, demonstration, not just in power of healing, but even through suffering. You will see that a lot in the book of, book of Acts, even in the life of the Apostle Paul. The power of God, the Holy Spirit, to have boldness, to witness and share about the gospel and to persevere through suffering. That's something we need to think about. So brothers and sisters in Christ, my question to you even as you reflect on this short passage is this. Will you surrender yourself to the Holy Spirit? To say, God, 
Change my heart. Let me see everything through your eyes. Help me to stop being afraid. Help me to stop being indifferent. Help me to stop trying to justify my way of life right now as a Christian for the last several decades, if not less or more. How much have I surrendered to you? We're coming to the day of Pentecost soon. But for today, do we recognize the importance of Jesus' ascension? That it was with a mandate of mission for the church. In light of his crucifixion, in light of his resurrection, with his coming again anchored in the experience of the Holy Spirit coming upon us. So pray that prayer if you have not. Pray it this, this, this morning and look forward to transformation to come. Let us pray. Father, we just want to humble ourselves and yield before you. Help us, O oh Lord, to think about when was the last time we preached the gospel to anybody, even within the family, our neighbours, our friends, our colleagues, anyone. What has been stopping us? Have we lost sight of the gospel? Do we need an encounter with your Holy Spirit? Father, I pray, O oh Lord, for all of us as we respond to your word being preached that you will fill our hearts, that you give us that power to witness to the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only in our Jerusalems, not only in our Judea and Samarias, but to the end of the earth, not only in All Saints Church, not only in Kuala Lumpur, not only in Southeast Asia, but through the whole world. Help us to do this, never out of religious obligation, but through your spirit that convicts our heart. I pray therefore for everyone who hears this prayer, even right now where they are viewing this, that your Holy Spirit touch their hearts right now. Touch their hearts right now. Let them see how much you love them. Let them see how much the world needs your love. I pray this prayer of blessing in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.